Thanks, Mike. <clears throat> well, first Sunday, 2019. As I was um, thinking about what I might like to talk about today, I, probably Romans is probably not the book you'd start with in the first on the first Sunday of um, of a new of a new year. But I think there's many things that we can learn. Um, I'm just wondering if you've managed to wish somebody near you sitting here today a happy new year and maybe a blessing the blessing of God for the year so can we just take 10 seconds and turn around and say happy new year to somebody you haven't said that to already I only said that to wake you up, just in case I couldn't, I couldn't bear it if everyone went to sleep. You can go to sleep now. I'll wake you up. Just remember, though, I've got questions at the end. So, so anyone who, who falls asleep is in trouble, including me. You know, a man uh, once said, uh, went to a doctor and he said, Hey, doctor, I've, um, I've been misbehaving. And my conscience is troubling me. So that was his complaint. So the doctor asked him, so would you like something to strengthen your willpower? Well, actually, no, replied the man. I was thinking of something that might weaken my conscience. <laughs> you know, in Romans chapter 14 here, we see Paul the Apostle dealing with matters of Christian conscience and personal conviction, especially when in, the, in uh, how they relate to relationships of the strong and weak in faith. Paul's prescription in chapter 14 is a lot different to what the guy was when he went to the doctor. Paul does not praise the overly, sensus, overly sensitive conscience of the weak, but he doesn't condemn it either. He accepts Christians where they are in their pilgrimage of faith. And he pleads for us to do the same thing. You know, Ray Steadman, who was an evangelical pastor and author, said this. He said, the favourite indoor sport of Christians is trying to change each other. In Romans 14, Paul says that we shouldn't endeavour to change one another to suit our preferences but instead we should change our conduct so as we don't offend a weaker brother. Verses 1 to 12 deal with this our responsibility here to respect the convictions of one another rather than trying to revise them. We're actually going to go a little bit further this morning. We're going to have a look at the whole of chapter 14. And so we look at the, the last uh, third, 11 verses they instruct us how to refrain from exercising our liberties when they could harm other Christians. So we're going to look at it in two passages, in two parts today, somehow. Have I not turned this on? Always works when you turn it on, doesn't it? So we're going to look at the first 12 verses which Mike, Mike read. And I've called that 
weak and strong should get along. And then the last bit was strong in faith must love weak in faith. So there's some challenging things in here. I think of the first, one of the first questions that we should uh, be asking ourselves today is this. How do you get along with others in the body of Christ? As we grow together, there's going to be occasions when we don't. There's going to be occasions when we come across people that we're not all that comfortable with. They might do things a little bit differently to us. They might even do things that we might even think aren't even Christian. Well, the good news is it wasn't a new, that's not a new problem for us here. We're not the first people to encounter this. The Apostle Paul encountered this very problem when he was talking to the fledgling Roman church. As I said, it's not new news for us either, is it? It's just as relevant for us today in our own churches as it was for the Roman church in Paul's day. That early church was carrying some pretty heavy cultural baggage. That early church consisted of Gentile Christians who had been pagans prior to their conversion. And therefore they had many, much of this cultural baggage that they were carrying with them. That early church composed of many Jewish Christians who were steeped in the orthodoxy of Jewish ritual eating practices, and the only way to live. There was a mixture of cultures, races, religious and class backgrounds. Sounds a little bit like today, doesn't it? You know, Romans 13, 14 says this, Rather close yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. Well, Romans 14, Paul is now building on that statement. We're now clothing ourselves in the Jesus Christ. How do we disassociate ourselves from sin desire, sinful desires? Well, one of the first things we can do is by not condemning. Verse 1 commands us to do that. It says, accept the one whose faith is weak. He doesn't say we should judge the weak believer, but rather to accept them. I think the, word, the connotation of the word accept here is to keep on taking them unto yourself. That means drawing them into a relationship. It means more like, it's more than just acknowledging their presence without any interaction at all. It's also, it's deeper than that. It means actual acceptance without a motive to change or to act in any derogatory manner. But instead, treat with respect. And who is someone who is weak in faith? We read that. It's, for, it's vitally important here to understand we're not talking about salvation here. This is not about a person, whether a person is born again or saved. It's not about a person's will, wanting to do the things that are right. But it is about their faith, their understanding of the freedoms that are in Christ, which have been, not been exercised enough when they were, to get strong. You know, faith, faith is like a muscle. 
When we don't exercise it, it becomes flabby. Just look at me. Our faith needs to be exercised. It needs a good workout. I think that a weak faith is not about being overcome by temptation or even giving over to a sinful life. It's more about a situation when a person is being indecisive, indecisive about what God really wants in their lives. Is God really talking to me? How do I know what he's saying to me? Is it just a feeling I have? Or is God really speaking? How many of us have asked those questions of ourselves? What a weak person lacks is not strength or self-control, but a strong conscience. That, that liberty that their conscience gives them to be able to exercise that liberty or the freedom that Christ has brought for us as he's paid that penalty for our sins. Paul then talks about disputable matters. It's important that we understand what Paul is describing here. First of all, let's, let's talk about what disputable matters are not. I think they're these. Essentials of doctrine, moral issues, God-given instructions for all time. That's what he's not talking about in disputable matters. What are they? Matters that may be important to living the Christian life. Matters which let us glorify God, mature his people, but possibly not outlined in scripture. Paul looks, for example, at the issues of food and drink and the celebration of special days. Today, there are many issues based around these particular matters. Christian communities, there's always been robust discussion about the taking of alcohol, the way people dress, how we spend our time, how we let ourselves be entertained. In today's world and culture, many of the matters raise their heads, don't they? So how do we address these issues? We really need to know what the Bible says. And then we need to be asking God understanding of how we can apply scripture to these matters. Paul then adds that we must not judge others when God has already accepted them. Paul gives us some examples such as non-kosher food. We're not to judge or despise or look down at those Christians who avoid non-kosher meat. But he exhorts us that those who are weak in faith also should not judge those who eat non-kosher food. It reminds me of the descending um, attitude that the Jews had towards Gentiles when, uh, as Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 2. What he's really saying is both groups are to fully and unconditionally accept each other because their faith strong or weak, is in Christ. And therefore God accepts both parties. And that's all that matters. Verse 4 is a timely reminder for us in this discussion. We're reminded that it is God's responsibility to judge the actions of the one 
of, of ones in faith. Now that may seem to us that there's going to be a fall, but it's still not our right to judge. We may be afraid that we might even see a person falling into sin. But what Paul says here is this. It's not our job to ensure that a person is able to stand because he, the Lord, will make him stand. Verses 5 and 6 talk about perceived holy days and Paul argues along similar lines here that he uses in his argument about food. Now many scholars think that the people who argued about food would have been Jewish Christians. At that time, the Jews had so many sacred days that were celebrated in accordance with the calendar that God had already set out for them in the Old Testament. Basically, Paul is saying that the celebration of those days is actually for God and not for anyone else. We're not living for ourselves. We're living for God. Therefore, we have no reason to judge others because Christ died for us, whether we're weak or strong. We're to love one another, not judge one another. That's got to be our attitude towards one another, not through what we would or could do, but because what has been done for us. Verses 10 through 12 returns returns to Paul's original arguments of, of verses 1 to 3. He rebukes the weak for judging their fellow believers, and that's in, in verse 10a. And the strong for de, de, um, despising, despising their fellow believers. This shouldn't happen because all will stand before God in judgment. Paul now quotes Isaiah 45:23. Before me, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. It's later quoted in Philippians 2:11. We're reminded that all will give account of their life before God. So, what can be a takeout regarding the weak and the strong in faith, accepting one another in these first 12 verses? And I think they're these. God and Christ have accepted both weak and strong. Both weak and strong are answerable to God. When we stand before God, we won't be worrying about the person standing right beside us. We need to be concentrating on ourselves. We may think that we have been or are strong. But how are you going to answer the question, how do you treat the body of Christ? How am, am I investing my time in the body of Christ? How am I building myself into the body of Christ? What attitude do I have uh, to, towards my brother in Christ? I think we can say this. My attitude towards others should be the same as God's. You know, I think sometimes we get so caught up in the way we do church that it turns us looking inward rather than outward looking. Although some of those customs that we do almost ritually discouraging others from coming to church 
What disputable matters are you holding firm onto? Out of pride, in deference to having the same attitude as God. In this text, Paul doesn't give us a list of disputable matters. You know, as I was preparing this talk today, I really felt God laying on my heart to share some examples of disputable matters which might occur in our churches today. And as I thought of some of these, you know, it really cut me. Because I can see some of them having dramatic effects on the way we do church. And certainly because we think that they're more important than matters of doctrine. So what are the disputable matters which are alive and well in our churches today? I've made a bit of a list. It's not an exhaustive list. But they're some of the things that just have come to my mind. I was hoping to get these up one at a time, but we don't. So some of the things. Tattoos, alcoholic beverages, tobacco, appropriate forms of entertainment. Type of music in church services. Ordination of women for pastoral ministry. Tithing or proportional giving. Whether or not the more spectacular gifts of the Spirit are operative today. Church governance. Mode of baptism. Whether or not the Lord's Supper and baptism are sacramental. Just a few. However the dispute, these disputable matters play into our minds, the bottom line is this. In non-essential matters, no believer, strong or weak, has the right to judge the other's viewpoint. Are we letting that sand, the pebbles, the ping-pong balls in that jar of our lives take up more space than what it deserves? Because it is God whom we should be concentrating on. Verse 13, and, and Mike didn't read these, so let me just read a few more verses. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. So Paul now continues these instructions to the strong and the weak in faith by focusing on the need for Christians strong in faith to love those Christians who may be weak in faith. And they should do this by limiting their own liberty in Christ and not flaunting the liberty. You know, it's an interesting uh, use of the word stumbling block here. Now, I understand from the Greek, 
Paul's not talking about some little pebble which you may walk on. Rather, it's a rock in your way. It's like tripping on a large rock and falling over. Then he uses this word obstacle. Now that appears to me something like a trap. A trap is set deliberately to catch someone or something out. In this connotation, it would be a deliberate action to cause someone to fall. And what's Paul saying about that? He's saying, don't do it. Those strong in faith have a responsibility of not using liberty regarding practices of the church and Paul mentions specifically these dietary rules, didn't he? I guess that was because the makeup of this early Roman church, Jews and Gentiles, both coming from this long ancestry of custom. Now it's obvious that Paul is siding with those strong in faith because Jesus had abolished the dietary laws. But he challenges the strong to consider the convictions of the weak. This scenario, Paul's encouraging the strong not to eat non-kosher food in the presence of the weak because it might adversely influence weak Christians to eat against their conscience. Some of what Paul's saying here is a tough ask for us. Do I really have to pay so much attention to my brother in Christ that I really am not looking after myself? Is that what Paul's saying here? I think we've got to remember that that person is also the person that Christ died for. So maybe we should be looking out for them. After all, Christ died for me and you just the same as he died for our Christian brothers and sisters. But Paul says more. He says not to destroy someone for whom Christ died. Now for me, I'm not convinced that, that when he says destroy, he's talking about those persons losing their salvation. Because the, the Bible teaches quite differently on that, doesn't it? But it could mean that we might be stunting their spiritual growth when we tear them down. That's not something that we want to happen to our Christian brothers or sisters, is it? What really matters before God is not about eating or drinking. It's not about what we eat or drink. It's all about the kingdom of God. It's all about Jesus. The kingdom of God is God's reign in the hearts of his people. He is their king and they are his subjects. Therefore, the kingdom of God involves service to God and others. In this case, then, it's all about serving the weak in faith by placing limits on the strong in faith's liberty. This is to please God and others, as Paul says in verse 18. So what does it mean for us in 2019? Let me give you an example from my own life. One of my hobbies is wine tasting. <gasps> Disputable matter. 
I taste to enjoy the various flavours that emanate from different grape varieties. I taste to investigate whether I can remember flavours from previous tastings and then assimilate them into a current situation. Now because Robin's a really good cook, one of the things I love to do is to match wines with the various foods that she, that, um, she likes to cook. And that can be a lot of good fun doing that, just seeing what the results of my choices are. Some have been really good choices and some have been disasters. When we have guests for a meal, the very first question I always ask is if they partake of alcohol. I will always be subject to their response. If the answer is no, then there's no alcohol. If the answer is yes, then alcohol is served in moderation, always being respectful for whom and what the occasion is. Yes, sometimes I am giving up a liberty that I enjoy, but it is my responsibility to ensure that I don't become a stumbling block for my Christian brother or sister. With the decisions that we make, we must make them lovingly and under God's direction because we need to make sure that they're not only approved by man, but more importantly, approved by God. I think we should, one of the little things we can remember from this is this. Flaunting my liberty in Christ displeases God and hurts the weak believer. What liberty might you be flaunting in your life that would be to the detriment of a weak believer in your circle of friends? can be a difficult one to answer, can't it? Why should I give up something just because that person might not like it? Maybe we can counteract that question by, with something like, is the exercising of my liberty pleasing to God? Flaunting my liberty in Christ displeases God and hurts the weak believer. We should be looking at the decisions we're making, not from some list, but from the principles that Christ is giving us. And Paul has emphasised them for us. Basically, he's saying decisions should be made lovingly and under God's direction. So far, Paul's given us a lot of do's and don'ts, hasn't he? But now he gives us three loving responses for us as believers. And this is them. The first one, every effort for peace and mutual edification. Now, Paul's saying that this is not just going to happen by some magical thing. There's got to be some effort on our parts. That, that will allow the body of Christ to continue to build. And it'll be for our mutual enlightenment. So not only for someone else, but for us as well. So it becomes a reward for all believers. We work together in the body of Christ. The second point, do not destroy the work of God because of food. All food is clean 
but it's wrong for us to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. Now Paul is really clear here. There is liberty. There's no ambiguity. He's not saying, I'm not really sure about this. He says, I know all food is clean. God had convinced Peter already back in Acts chapter 10. And so it's a clear understanding. So he doesn't need to apologise for that. But he also warns us not to destroy the work of God for the sake of food. God is sovereign. He will accomplish his purposes. Therefore we have no right to interfere in another's life and, and their journey with Christ. It's God's work. And the last one, don't call, cause your brother to fall. If we're willing to please God and to love our brother or sister, then we will be willing to forego something that may be very pleasant for us. It may be a very legitimate practice or activity, something that we might even cherish. We come to realise that what we need to be concerned about is our brother or sister with whom we are related to in the body of Jesus. Then we can have the strength, the strength that God will give us to be willing to forego some of those things. Then finally, Paul finishes with two warnings, one for the strong in faith, one for the weak. Verse 22 says, there are certain things that are kept between you and God. In other words, don't go around talking about it to everyone. One of these things might be your views on certain matters. Remember, we're talking about disputable matters here, not matters of doctrine or faith or sin or salvation. God wants us to talk to him about the innermost thoughts of our hearts and not to every Tom, Dick and Harry. We need to be searching out his direction for our lives from him directly, not bouncing ideas off each other. Then it comes to a warning for the weak in faith. Paul is talking about what our conscience is telling us. If our conscience says no, then don't. The world might say, oh, what a goody two-shoes he is. He's acting to, in, out of his conscience. But God says, well done. God gives us an inbuilt capacity to discern right from wrong. Now recently, uh, last October, I, I attended a Bible study fellowship retreat where we studied the book of Colossians. Now the point was made about where our spiritual fitness lay. Do we exercise enough to grow our spiritual fitness? How do we do that? We do it by being constantly trained in God's word. That's one of the reasons why we study God's word. Not only because someone told us to do so and it'd probably make us a better, possibly make us a better Christian, but so you can gain spiritual fitness. Our final little point could be this. Pleasing God by exercising love is the task of both the strong and the weak. So where do we exercise this love? 
Is it a priority in your life? Is there somewhere that you need to strengthen your conscience? You know, so, so often we hear our politicians say there's no silver bullet when it comes to fixing some problem or other. But you know, there really is a silver bullet. There is a silver bullet for our spiritual lives. And, the spiritual li and our silver bullet is Jesus. Seek out Jesus. He is our spiritual bullet, bullet to f spiritual fitness. Spiritual maturity is not about being a weaker or a stronger believer. So how's your, how's your spiritual fitness? We're going to have a time of, of uh, our time of communion now and I thought that that was probably a good point to, um, to finish on. As we contemplate where God's taking us from what we've learnt from his word, it's now becomes a good opportunity to come round his table whether we're weak or we're strong believers. Remember, spiritual maturity is not about being a strong or weak believer. It's about how we react to the call of God on our lives. He shed his blood for us on that cross at Calvary. He rose again to defeat sin once and for all. There is no continuing sacrifice that he or we have to make because Jesus has done it all once and for all time. Let's remember that as we participate in the Lord's Supper together. And I forgot to ask helpers. So volunteer helpers. But let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, as we gather around this communion table, Lord, please show us in our conscience what you would have, right or wrong. Lord, we lean on you continuously for our strength and our hope. Be with us. Give us that strength and the hope that we have in, in, through your Son. And Lord, I just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.